Thank you very much for that talk. Uh, my name is Curtis Opp. I'm a past president and a co-founder of the SDPA. And it's my honor to introduce uh, our next and last speaker for the day is Dr. Marcus Conant, uh, who I've known for a long time. Um, he is actually a, uh, a key figure in the beginning stages of the SDPA. He helped write the bylaws. Uh, he was the honorary supervising physician for our organization in, 19, in 2006, I believe it was, 2005. Uh, he's also a practitioner of the year for the AAD in uh, 1996. He's a professor emeritus at UCSF, professor in dermatology. Uh, he's now uh, is a, a medical uh, director of a research company uh, here in San Francisco working on a hepatitis C vaccine. He had the largest AIDS practice in San Francisco in the uh, 1990s, uh, saw about 5,000 patients. Uh, he's portrayed in the movie The Band Played On. Um, what else? There's, there's just, it just goes on and on and on and on. But uh, he's been with this organization from the very beginning. And so uh, I want everybody to join me in welcoming Dr. Conant. Uh, I want to thank the organizers for arranging the schedule. I was hiking in Death Valley. Uh, and our plane got in, and I actually made it in time. I was here at 10 minutes to 3, but they swapped speakers because Curtis was about to have a hemorrhage that I, uh, I wouldn't show up, but, but I made it just by the skin of my teeth. Thank you for staying late. I'll try to make this, this interesting. I understand Gary Westbrook is here as well, so uh, two of the people that trained in my office uh, are here. And it is an honor and a privilege to have been instrumental in helping found this organization. When I opened the door to come in, I said to Curtis, it certainly has grown uh, since early 1992 when we sat at an American Academy of Dermatology meeting in New Orleans and started talking about the need for dermatology PAs. And, can, and hopefully it will continue to grow. When they uh, told me that they were going to make a movie out of Randy Schultz's book and the band played on, uh, they ask, who did they uh, want to p portray me? And, it, you know, it, it, it's obvious from, from the moment you think about it, it's Whoopi Goldberg. But they didn't choose Whoopi Goldberg, unfortunately, and uh, that, for that reason the movie's really not, not that great. If we could have the slides on, uh, and where is the advancer is probably right here. You'd think after all these years you'd know how to use one of these things, right? I, I want to begin with a message that I actually had for the American Academy of Dermatology when they met here in San Francisco two years ago. And that was that as we move more and more into doing cosmetic procedures, and that clearly is where dermatology is moving at the present time. That's where the money is. That's occurred because of managed care and, again, people having to generate money to keep their practices going. It's important to continue to remember that dermatology began as a medical subspecialty. And, of course, in the 16, 17, 1800s, you weren't a dermatologist or a cardiologist or a gastroenterologist. You were a doctor. Now, you might have an organ that you were particularly fond of, and it might be the lungs, but you saw people who walked in with any condition at all. And so there were people where the condition that they were most interested in was the skin. And, of course, they used the skin not only to treat skin diseases like acne, but they used the skin as a mirror of what's happening in the body. 
you know, can I actually look at a patient and make some guess about what's happening systemically uh, to this patient? And that's how our specialty began. It began as a medical subspecialty. In many medical schools in this country, it was under the umbrella of the Department of Internal Medicine and not a, a separate uh, specialty. And it was only later, only actually in my 44-year career as a dermatologist, have I seen the emergence of surgical specialty uh, in, in our field. Now, dermatology really began as an honored subspecialty because of syphilis. Syphilis was, of course, a disease that was systemic, and you could diagnose the disease because of the cutaneous findings. And up until 1942, when Fleming introduced penicillin, there was no good cure for syphilis. Uh, we had silverdine and all sorts of other things, but nothing that really, really worked. And so the American Academy of Dermatology was quite large, quite honored, and it was the American Academy of Dermatology and Syphology. And if I were giving this talk in India today, I wouldn't be invited to talk to dermatologists about how to recognize HIV from skin diseases. I'd be asked to talk about how to treat HIV patients because in India, the HIV patients are treated by dermatologists. And in Europe, even today, it's not the American Academy of Dermatology. It's the American Academy of Dermatology and Venereology. And so when I go to the, uh, the EDVA meetings, it's not surprising to walk in on a lecture on infertility or erectile dysfunction or all sorts of sexually transmitted problems. Because if you get a sexually transmitted disease in Europe, you know that you go to the dermatologist to treat that condition. But unfortunately, Americans didn't want to tell their mothers that they were syphologists. And so shortly after the introduction of penicillin, we dropped the syphology from the name. If you go back to your library, go look at the journal of American Academy of Dermatology prior to 1942. It's the American Academy of Dermatology and Syphology. But they dropped the syphology because they said syphilis has been cured. We won't see that disease anymore. If you happen to practice here in the Bay Area, you know that syphilis is resurging again, and it resurges every decade because people forget about it and they don't recognize it when it walks into their office, and the patient is diagnosed with more advanced disease. So what I'm going to do today is to take Osler's saying, if you know syphilis, you know medicine, and apply it to two diseases that you will be seeing in your office that you can diagnose from the cutaneous manifestations, and I'll talk about these cutaneous manifestations and how to recognize them. They are, of course, HIV-AIDS, which I've done for the past 27 years, and hepatitis C, which I'm working on right now. And as Curtis says, I do work for a small pharmaceutical company now. We're not developing a vaccine, though I'm getting ready to do a vaccine for HIV, which is what uh, I was telling Curtis earlier. Uh, we're actually working on a once-a-day pill to treat hepatitis C. And if you're following that literature, um, you will learn that there are a number of companies that will probably have hepatitis C drugs on the market within the next year or two. Vertex will probably have their hepatitis C protease inhibitor on the market by the end of 2010. So we're going to see a major change in how we manage hepatitis C. Because as you know, for hep C right now, the treatment of choice is interferon ribavirin for up to a year, and it only works in about 50% of the uh, genotype 1A uh, patients. So poor success rate, 
long, long treatment. That's going to change dramatically within the next year. So we'll talk about how to recognize these patients and then how to get them to the infectious disease doctors for treatment. Now, the reason that this is so applicable to this audience is that from the time that I saw the first AIDS case in San Francisco, which was in 1981, until about five years ago, the way you diagnosed HIV was because of the cutaneous manifestations. We didn't even have an ELISA test till 1985, and we didn't have a viral load test till 1996. And so the tools that we have today <clears throat> were not available in the early days of the AIDS epidemic. We could do a, a CD4 count, but that was the only thing you could do. So a patient would come in, and you'd ask yourself, you know, does this young man have HIV? And you could ask for the symptoms of the disease, you know, are you having nice sweats, are you having cough, are you having weight loss, are you having diarrhea? But what you really wanted to do was what a dermatologist always does, undress the patient and look for the cutaneous manifestations of the disease. Hepatitis C is acquired in exactly the same way as HIV. It's a blood-borne, sexually transmitted disease. Now, while in the United States, most of the cases of HIV are contracted sexually, and most of them are contracted by gay men, um, Hepatitis C in the United States is generally contracted from IV drug use, but gay men are at greater risk for the disease than the general public. Now, there are studies that say that's not true, but if you look at practices, if you look at patients' uh, populations, the incidence of hepatitis C is much greater in gay men, probably because of some sexual practices that are engaged in by gay men, some of which can cause tearing of the rectal mucosa, and also because gay men have so many different partners uh, than, than do straight men. Now, the incidence of hepatitis C is staying at about 19,000 new cases a year. The incidence of HIV, anybody know what the incidence of HIV is? How many new cases of HIV do we have in the United States each year? It's 58,000. And it's been 58,000 since highly active antiretroviral therapy was introduced in 1996. So for, what, 12 years now, it has been uh, 58,000 people. That means 600,000 people, more than half a million people have contracted HIV since we've had effective therapy that stops not only progression of the disease, but essentially stops transmission. So we're doing a pretty poor job as a nation for our own people and setting a, a standard for the rest of the world in, do, in stopping the AIDS epidemic. For those of you that want to try to relate that to your patients and your colleagues, 58,000 is exactly the number of men uh, that died in Vietnam. So we are infecting with HIV exactly the number of people who died in Vietnam, but not once. We're doing it every year and have done so for the last 12 years. Now with HIV, what you see are, are some diseases that appear very, very early in the course of the disease. I used to joke, if, if in fact gallows humor is a joke, that I could go to the San Francisco Opera and pick out the men that were infected with HIV. And seborrheic dermatitis is one of the earliest things you see. When people have CD4 counts of 500, we'll have an exacerbation 
of their seborrheic dermatitis. Here presented, as you can see, in the nasolabial fold. But seborrheic dermatitis of the scalp or the axilla or anywhere on the body is common in early HIV infection. And, of course, the patient that I'm hoping that this talk will help you pick up is not the patient who has already been diagnosed and who has a low CD4 count and who's on highly active antiretroviral therapies, taking a triple is doing great. His CD4 count is slowly coming back up. I'm hoping that one of you will go out here tomorrow and see a patient who has seborrheic dermatitis like this and think, could this patient be HIV positive? And begin the process of determining, is this just seborrheic dermatitis that you know anybody can treat, or is this a harbinger of something else that's going on in this man. And one of the questions you might ask is, have you been having this problem for a long time, or is this new? And if this has only happened in the last six months, well, maybe you want to explore this a little further. And then you might want to find out if the patient is gay. And you could say, you know, do you usually have sex with men or women or both? People aren't going to kill you anymore if you ask that. Twenty years ago, if you asked that, you ran a good chance of getting beat up. But uh, most people understand nowadays... Uh, and, and can answer without any uh, being, being upset. But the fact that it's the banker walking in with seborrheic dermatitis does not necessarily mean that this guy um, has not had homosexual experiences. And, and remember, he can be married and have had homosexual experiences. You know, a guy that looks good to a lady also looks good to a guy. And so chances are that he could have had sex with both. So don't try to categorize people as, well, I don't think he looks gay, so chances are he's not gay, and I'm not going to embarrass him by asking, because that's how you're going to miss the diagnosis. And one of the things I often say to a patient is, I would be negligent not to ask, should we check your immune system to see if you've been exposed to HIV? And just make it almost you would be at fault, you the, uh, the provider, if you did not ask that question. Seborrheic dermatitis, as you know, is usually come on thing is usually a midline disease involving the scalp, the glabella, the nasolabial folds, the middle of the chest, and the groin, but of course can occur in the eye, seborrheic blepharitis, and in the ear, uh, and uh, uh, here, as you see, in the patient's axilla. Again, extensive HIV. Uh, extensive seborrheic dermatitis in a young man with very advanced HIV. This patient died about a year and a half after uh, this picture was taken. Now, sebderm you can diagnose easily. Sebderm you can treat easily. The take-home message is what it's really telling you about what's going on in this patient. I like this because, as all of you know, ringworm happens because the skin becomes resistant to the fungus for a period of time. And here you see that it's re-inoculated in the center and the fungus is coming out in concentric circles. It's not unusual in an HIV-positive patient to see athlete's foot, artenia corpus, artenia curse, but in unusual presentations and unusual locations. For example, if you see athlete's foot on the top of the foot, think immune suppression. Sure, it's common to have it between the little toe and the fourth toe. It's common to have a mosaic pattern on the bottom of the foot. But to see athlete's foot on the top of the foot, that should be the thing that makes you think, could this patient be infected with HIV? Tenia curse, jock itch, 
common, but, you know, do you just give the patient Desinex powder or a prescription for some antifungal, or do you begin to use this as a way to talk to this patient about what's happening to his immune system and why he has this? And here's a patient where the athlete's foot is beginning to extend up onto the top of the foot. Now, onychomycosis is another very, very common thing to see in HIV-positive patients. And I know you all see a dozen patients with onychomycosis every week, and you don't have time to start questioning every one of them about could you be HIV-positive. But at least you could say, is there any reason we should suspect that your immune system is not normal, that you're not handling this well? And, of course, be warned. If the patient has not been fully candid with you and told you all of the medications they're taking, and if they already know they're HIV positive, and they happen to be on a protease inhibitor, and you then give them Sporinox to treat the fungus in their toenail, uh, they're going to have major problems because Sporinox is broken down by the cytochrome P450 pathway, and um, the Norvir that they're taking to boost their protease inhibitor blocks the cytochrome P450 pathway. And so these patients are going to be taking the normal amount of, of Spornox. They're going to be taking six to eight times the normal amount of Spornox. Um, and so be certain before you prescribe Spornox that the patient is not on a cytochrome P450 inhibitor. Now, another common thing that we see in HIV patients is zoster. Now, you can pretty well guess that this guy's gay because there are very few straight guys walk in your office with a nipple ring in. But, uh, it, you know, th this is where the diagnosis is, is really very easy to make. But I can't tell you how many cases I've seen where the dermatologist has treated the shingles knowing that this disease occurs with immunosuppression, knowing this disease occurs in the elderly because they're immunosuppressed, without questioning the patient about their risk factors for HIV. And I started telling my colleagues at the American Academy, if, if I'm ever called as an expert witness because you didn't question the patient, then I'm going to ruin your case for you by, by saying that, you know, no, well, no one suspects that uh, people that are gay don't look gay and, you know, that you can't figure it out. If you see someone, even an 80-year-old lady with zoster, you need to think about, could this person be HIV positive? How could an 80-year-old lady be positive? She had a transfusion before 1982. The end. And those people are still running around. Their kids that were born of HIV positive mothers are kids who had transfusions at birth, who are now sexually active young people who don't know that they're HIV positive. Are they rare? Yes. Are they two or three uh, standard deviations from the norm? You bet. But are they out there? Yes. Unfortunately, they are. A patient similar to this one, not this one, presented himself at my office. He knew he was HIV positive, had shingles, went to the UC emergency room. Now, if there's any place in the country as close to ground zero for the AIDS epidemic, it is probably uh, NYU in New York or St. Vincent's in New York and UC Medical Center in San Francisco. This guy walks in to the emergency room, has shingles. The doc correctly diagnoses it, gave him the incorrect dose of acyclovir, which they do every day, and said, see your doctor the next day. So he came to see me, and I said, 
Did you tell him you were HIV positive? No. Did he ask you? No. And so this doc did great treatment, well, not a great treatment, did a mediocre treatment, did a correct diagnosis and a poor treatment for zoster, but didn't ask the critical question. Is the, the shingles in this young man telling me something about what's going on in this patient? Can I now say to this patient, you know, if it were me, I would have HIV ELISA done just to be certain that you haven't been infected without knowing how you got it. And if the patient asks you, well, that can't be. I'm straight. You know, I've had the same girlfriend for a year now. I've had a couple of girlfriends before that. And I said, do you think any of those girlfriends would have told you if they had sex with a guy who was gay or bisexual? Yeah. Would the guy have told the girl he was bisexual? How many guys on a date say, oh, by the way, dear, I'm bisexual? That doesn't happen. How many girlfriends would tell you if they'd ever shot a drug up? Or if the guy they used to go with was shooting up drugs? These are the risk factors today for HIV. And what I'm trying to make you understand is that we have to be aware of those. If you were practicing in Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, 25% of the new cases of HIV infection are occurring in black women. 25% of the new cases. In Manhattan, 77% of black males age 15 to 25 who are HIV positive do not know they are HIV positive. Remember, you can be positive for up to 12 years before you start even having the cutaneous manifestations of the disease, much less any systemic manifestations. And that was based on a study that we did here in San Francisco. You're infected for a long time, you're infectious for a long time, and it's up to you guys seeing the patient for what they may think is a mundane neurological problem to recognize that it's telling you something about their systemic health. Zoster, of course, can occur in the mouth. I just like that picture because it's, it's unusual to see that. This is often seen in the Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. And, of course, this was the reason I got involved with AIDS early on. I was practicing at UC. My area of, of expertise and, and my practice had been focused on sexually transmitted viral diseases. I had done some of the initial studies with acyclovir. And patients with Kaposi's sarcoma started walking into the office. And uh, actually, the first case I saw presented with zoster. That was in February of 2001. And he walked into my office. I didn't have a clue what it was. thought it was shingles and a young nurse. He walked back into my office in September of that year. By that time, we had already seen some KS with KS on his feet, which he thought were bruises from hiking in the pinnacles. This tragic case was a young man who literally didn't go out of his home for the last eight months of his life because the capsic sarcoma was on his face. We don't see much KS now. We still see occasionally, but, but not nearly as much as we used to. At one point, I had seen 800 cases of Kaposi's sarcoma, and I was giving a lecture in England, and I mentioned that fact, and the professor said, that's more than the total number we've had in, in Great Britain. Uh, it was extremely common if you walked down the streets of the Castro to see patients with KS. 
like this. Now, KS, this picture doesn't really show it, but KS, when it was florid, was often bilaterally symmetrical, and this young man had a, a whole collarette of KS lesions. And again, seeing a patient with, with one or two KS lesions, unless you're thinking that, you might miss it. Of course, the biopsy will, if you don't know what it is, the biopsy uh, will give you a definitive diagnosis fairly quickly. And sometimes it's very subtle, like you see here. This young man presenting with a KS lesion right there uh, at the intercanthus. And you would miss that if you weren't thinking KS, okay? And I put that in to just show you, because most of you haven't lived through that era, what an early KS lesion looks like. It's flat. It's macular. It, uh, it's erythematous. It has a worn-off ring around it. It has a white halo around it. And it literally can appear overnight. And I can't tell you the number of cases I had where the patient said, this was not there yesterday, and it's here today. Okay? If you saw that, you might think, you know, if it's on the side of the neck, it's maybe a monkey bite. Maybe somebody was kissing him too hard and sucked on his neck or whatever. But it's capsiosarcoma, and the biopsy will give you the diagnosis. Patient with two diseases, KS kebnerizes. This patient had extensive tinea on his feet, on the dorsum of his feet, and his capsiosarcoma is kebnerizing into the athlete's foot. And so it's not just enough to scrape it or make a diagnosis because your KOH will be positive, but it's not enough to treat it. You've got to un diagnose the underlying disease. And this shows the bilateral symmetry. This is a patient's pe uh, perianal area. And there are actually three things going on here. He has perianal symmet bilaterally symmetrical capsisarcoma. You see that? He's got an anal wart. Anyway, there's an anal wart there uh, on what would be uh, the left side. But you see the ulceration there. And that's CMV. So he had cytomegaloviral ulceration in the perianal area, extremely painful, uh, best treated uh, with some caustic uh, that will uh, kill the uh, cytomegalovirus. We, we also in that era saw patients uh, who had adenoviral ulcerations in the perianal area. Something like Castellani's paint works great for those of you who don't use much of that. And this is the only disease I've ever described. Uh, I saw this patient, and, or one very much like him, and um, couldn't figure out why his thrush wouldn't go away with standard treatment for thrush, and sent him to my colleagues over at UC who biopsied the tongue, and we worked it up, and this is hairy oral leukoplakia. Um, and you see it here on the side of his tongue. I've only seen one case now in the last five years. There was a time when literally every patient walking into my office uh, had this condition. You see it on the tongue. You see it on the buccal mucosa of the cheek. You don't see it anywhere else. Um, and as, as probably all of you know, it is Epstein-Barr virus that causes this. Another patient with the same thing. So thrush that doesn't respond, or if it's limited just to the side of the tongue. And if you back up, let me back up and show you. If you look at it, too far, Doc. If you look at it, it if you can visualize a Japanese woodblock painting where you see these vertical lines, 
I'm always struck with the fact of how it really stands out, particularly a florid case like this, with these vertical lines. Not, not seen so much here, perhaps toward the distal end of the tongue, you see what I'm referring to. And, of course, candida is extremely common in these patients. Maybe the first thing that you see in your HIV-infected patient. Candida in the mouth. Again, how long have you had that? Two or three months. Why do you have that? Do you have an underlying malignancy? Are you using a steroid mouthwash? Are you HIV positive? The lady with a vaginal discharge that's candida, persistent, not responsive, think HIV infection, work her up for HIV infection. Impetigo, very, very common in your HIV-infected patients. Bacterial and viral diseases are very common, particularly DNA viruses, not RNA viruses, and bacterial infections like you see here. Um, again, it's not just enough to diagnose impetigo and treat that with an antibiotic. You need to make the correct diagnosis. These lesions look like molluscum contagiosum. They're not molluscum. This is cryptococcal disease uh, presenting on the skin in a young man who unfortunately died about 48 hours after this picture was taken. This is molluscum contagiosum. And uh, when Curtis was working with me when I, in the early days of the AIDS epidemic, we had people doing nothing but treating extensive molluscum contagiosum. Uh, you would see patients just covered, and I have one that's fairly extensive in a moment. But again, it's not the treatment that's important. It's the adult walking in your office with molluscum, think of immunosuppression. More extensive disease here, but I have a face coming up. There you go. And this young man actually flew out from Washington, D.C. regularly because we would anesthetize the area and then spend literally hours desiccating uh, these lesions of molluscum. Close up of that. Let's back up. And another extensive molluscum. Okay, aphthosomatitis. Again, something we see in all of our practices. Again, very, very common manifestation of HIV disease. And actually, this is also seen in the second disease I'm going to talk about, which is hepatitis C. Aphthosomatitis is a vasculitis. This, you know, your patients believe that it's bacterial. There are people still out there treating this with tetracycline. This is a vasculitis. If you biopsy it, this is a small blood vessel disease. And so, of course, the old-timey treatment of choice was to turn what is an active vasculitis into a burn. You simply touch it with a silver nitrate stick, and it's no longer an active vasculitis. You now have a burn in your mouth, and it takes three to five days to heal. And that's still one of the most effective ways to treat it. You can treat them with thalidomide. There's lots of other ways to do it. The old-timey way still works pretty well. But again, the take-home message is think of some underlying infection. In this case, both HIV and hepatitis C infection will present with aphthostomatitis. Scabies. It's common for sexually active young adults to get scabies. It's common for scabies to come to the dermatologist because they itch like hell. It's uncommon for people to have what has been called Norwegian scabies, where they have extensive uh, involvement of, of actually the entire body, including uh, the face. That was also 
not uncommon, it wasn't that common, but we'd see one or two or three a year of patients with Norwegian scabies who'd gone from one doctor to another until somebody finally said, maybe this patient is HIV positive as well as having scabies. And just another uh, picture of the same patient with extensive disease. Now, in this era, this began in about 1996, we started seeing this. This is facial lipoatrophy. And this, of course, is a syndrome that is characterized by a number of findings. The physical findings are facial wasting, buffalo hump, abdominal obesity, loss of peripheral fat, and a picture that you'll see in a moment um, is accentuation of the mons pubis. Uh, very, very common in this. And you don't see that, in my experience, in anything else. This facial wasting, um, we still don't know. Is it due to HIV itself? And patients are just living long enough now with treatment to get it. Is it due to the drugs that we use to treat the disease? Is it due to the combination of the two? And believe me, the pharmaceutical industries have spent a fortune trying to answer that question because obviously if you could produce a drug that didn't cause this, it would be the drug of choice uh, for HIV. We do know that drugs like D4T tend to accentuate it, but whether that was the only cause or not, it's not clear. Now, this can be corrected with facial fillers, and many of you may be doing that in your practice. But again, it's to make you aware of the patient who walks in who's 40 years old and looks like he's 65 years old, think, could this patient be having facial lipoatrophy? And, of course, the buffalo hump seen here. Here's the mons pubis I'm talking about. If you see that, you might want to think about this patient being HIV positive because and some of you may have. I have never seen this in anyone except an HIV positive patient. And this is the peripheral fat loss. You see what the patients call roping, where the, the veins of the arms and the legs become extremely prominent. Again, in a 40-year-old man, you should not be seeing the, the venous vasculature this prominent. Now, warts. Warts are also very common in HIV-positive people because they're sexually active. Warts are also seen in people as a marker of HIV infection. Why? Because warts are not as responsive to therapy in the HIV patient as they are in the uninfected patient. Here's a patient after I've done acetohwhitening just to demonstrate the wart. I mean, acetohwhitening gets a bad rap because people call every little pore that they see a wart. If you actually do acetohwhitening and you get used to using it, this is what you see in a patient who has extensive wart disease. And here's a patient with a perianal uh, condyloma. Again, sure, you can treat it. The question is, do you, do you really think about why this patient has this and what it really means? And, of course, this disease in and of itself is serious as well. Why? Because this disease, back up, will lead to this. What you see down at the lower pole at about 7 o'clock is a squamous cell carcinoma. The incidence of squamous cell carcinoma in patients with perianal warts is exactly the same today as the incidence of squamous cell carcinoma of the cervix was in women prior to the introduction of pap smears. It is one case out of every 32,000 people. Okay? In HIV-positive patients, the incidence of squamous cell carcinoma is three times as much. 
So in your HIV-positive patient, if you don't make the diagnosis and you just treat the wart, you're doing him or her a great disservice because by the time you diagnose the squamous cell carcinoma from the wart on the inside, it may already be advanced and the patient may die of this disease, which, by the way, is not a nice way to die. There's another picture of one as well. Here you see two things. Off there at about 8.30, 9 o'clock, you see boinoid papulosis. And next to that, you see a little arch shape. That is a squamous cell carcinoma next to an involuting wart. This patient died of this disease. Simple acne. 32-year-old person hasn't had acne for the last 10 years, walks in with acne. Think HIV infection. And here, a basal cell carcinoma. Basal cell carcinomas are more common in HIV-positive people than in the general population. Now, is it because they are HIV-positive, or is it because they're gay men with more disposable income than their straight brothers, and they're going to Hawaii and Caribbean cruises? We don't know. And there have been two or three studies designed to try to answer that, but the Bottom line is, if you see a patient with a basal cell, particularly if he's not in the right age group, think HIV. And body basal cell carcinoma, superficial body basal cell carcinoma. You know, patient thinks it's a little eczema. Question, how long has it been there? Four or five months. You'd probably make the diagnosis. You'd probably remove it. Again, think, could this patient be HIV positive? And I like that because it shows just the pathology so nicely, the basal cell just right under the epidermis. And untreated, they can get pretty large. Uh, you you want to aggressively attack your basal cell carcinoma. And melanoma. Melanoma does not happen more commonly in the HIV population, at least as far as we know, but it is certainly more aggressive. And so, again, it's very important to not only diagnose the melanoma, but to wonder about the patient's underlying immune competence. And I'll end all of this with another disease that's very common in your HIV population, and that's syphilis. And obviously, Palmer lesions are pathognomonic of syphilis. And when you diagnose one sexually transmitted disease, be it herpes or syphilis or hepatitis B, or hepatitis C, or any of the 32 sexually transmitted diseases, what that patient's really telling you is they're having sex without a condom, they're at risk for having HIV infection. Another picture of the same, showing the lesions on his leg and his hand. Now, let's switch topics for the last few minutes and talk a little bit about hepatitis C. Hepatitis C is worldwide... There's about 170 million cases of hep C. There are about three times more cases of hepatitis C in the United States as there are cases of HIV. HIV, I told you we have 58,000 new infections a year. It's thought that we have about 1.2 million cases of HIV uh, in the United States. We have about 3.2 million cases of hepatitis C many of them from transfusions before we started testing the blood for hep C, um, and many of them from IV drug use, a few of them for sexual exposure. The treatment, uh, interferon ribavirin, takes a year. 
if you show response and of the people treated for a year only about fifty percent respond to that therapy and so there's a tremendous push by a number of drug companies to come up with either a protease inhibitor a polymerase inhibitor or an NS5A or an NS5B, which are non-structural parts of the, of the gene, uh, to block re replication of this virus. Now, of the people who get hepatitis C, interestingly enough, 15% cure themselves. They, they clear the virus infection, probably because their immune system responds fast enough before the virus can come up with, with subspecies. 65% uh, of them go ahead to develop chronic liver disease. And of those, 15% develop severe cirrhosis, and 4% of them die of hepatocellular carcinoma. So this is another disease where you can literally save the patient's life if you can make the diagnosis early enough. And it goes, from, as from these figures, you can tell, it goes many, many years that someone's infected and infectious before they present with decompensated liver disease. And so again, the dermatologist seeing the diseases that have been associated with hepatitis C may make the diagnosis much earlier. So what are the few diseases that have been associated with hep C? Clearly the most common, and this is controversial. There are studies from places like Egypt where it may be as high as 50% of the cases have lichen planus and other places where it's as low as 3%. Now is that how they constructed the study. For example, in looking at some of these studies, I can't tell if they went to hepatitis C clinics to see how many people had had lichen planus or they went to dermatology offices to see how many people with lichen planus had been diagnosed with hepatitis C. And of course, those two study designs would significantly change how you, uh, what kind of data that you receive. If you see a patient with lichen planus, you should test them regardless of their sexual history, for hepatitis C. And I have now picked up two cases, and lichen planus is not that common, where they, and they were both women, who have absolutely no idea how they got hepatitis C, but presented with lichen planus, and just because I was aware of this association, was able to make the diagnosis. Lichen planus on the penis. Like in plainness, I almost always make the diagnosis because of the violaceous color. And you don't see it here, but there's a one later on where you see it. And often the lesions are on the lip, and the patient will be sitting there giving me a history, and you've made the diagnosis before they even finish, as you do with, with many skin diseases. Before they even finish telling you about it, you know what it is. And it's that violaceous color that's the giveaway. Here, uh, Wickham stria, superficial papulosquamous disease. Some people don't even classify it as papulosquamous anymore because uh, the, the, the lesions are not that raised. But that's a fairly typical lesion on the penis. It's, it's one of three things. It's either lichen planus or psoriasis or syphilis. And, of course, as you know, 10% of the patients present with lesions in their mouths, and 10% of those go on to have malignancies in those lesions. There's a close-up that shows better what it looks like, the sort of reticulated white pattern of the disease in the mouth. But, again, I'm not trying to teach you how to make a diagnosis of lichen planus. You know that. I'm trying to teach you that when you see the lichen planus case, you should think of hepatitis C. Here's the violaceous color. This woman presenting with the lesions on the labia, and you can see this clearly violaceous color, which should be a giveaway even before you do your little punch biopsy. 
Porphyria cutanea tarda, another liver disease, and is also a high association with hepatitis C. And, of course, with porphyria cutanea tarda, as you'll remember, these patients are making too much uroporphyrin. They are exquisitely sun-sensitive, so they stay inside all the time. They become harassute, as you see here. And because of the incredible sun sensitivity, if they don't stay out of the sun, they ulcerate their skin extensively, which leads to um, distortion of their, their features. And the porphyrins are deposited in their teeth. And so if they go to your local disco and they have a, a, blue, a black light going, uh, their teeth will glow in the dark, which is a real crowd pleaser. Um, here's a guy. Uh, who didn't stay out of the sun, and you can see he's got pretty severe sun damage. But you can also see where the myths of the werewolf or the vampire came from. Teeth were abnormal. Uh, skin is terribly irregular and distorted. Has to stay inside, can only come out at night. His hair is suit. It describes a werewolf about as good as you can do. Here on the back of his hand, you see extensive sun damage. and You can actually see a little blister there on the first finger of that hand. And marked porculoderma of the neck because the patient is so photosensitive. Some of these are not my pictures. With the HIV pictures, almost all of those I took. Some of these I've lifted off the web for you. Um, but again, a lot of photo damage. But again, don't just think of porphyria and don't think, wow, was I great? I made the correct diagnosis. Go a step further and really make the correct diagnosis. And here's this patient's teeth glowing with a wood's light. Urticaria. I mentioned that uh, aphthostomatitis occurs more commonly in the HIV patient. Of course, urticaria is just one extreme of this whole series of vasculinities, including, you know, urticaria, uh, erythema multiforme, erythema uh, centrifugum, um, erythema gyratum, uh, erythema nodosum. All of them are just a spectrum of disease. And all of them have been described as occurring with hepatitis C. But that patient that comes in with the unexplained hives, in your workup, you know, you get a CBC, also get a hepatitis C antibody test. And a close-up of that. Patient who has dermographism, uh, a, a form of urticaria, just from scratching at her face. And more extensive urticaria. I don't need to show you guys urticaria. Back up. And vitiligo has also been associated with hepatitis C. So again, your workup for a patient presenting, not somebody's had vitiligo for 20 years, but a patient presenting with onset vitiligo, think of hepatitis C. Henoch-Schernlein purpura, another vasculinity, um, has been associated with hep C. So again, the young man who comes in, may have had a viral disease a few weeks ago. You may want to attribute the Henoch-Schernlein's purpura, the progressive pigmentary purpura, to that. Also think of hepatitis C. More of the same. And Bichette's disease, one of those mysterious vasculitides involving the mouth, the eye, the genitals, uh, associated with arthritis, another vasculitide. We don't know what causes it in many cases. In that whole list of things that you try to rule in or rule out, include hepatitis C. Aphthostomatitis, as you saw in the AIDS patient. Here you see a larger one in the mouth of uh, this patient uh, with hepatitis C. More extensive disease, uh, all apthy. Purigo nodularis. Probably not purigo nodularis per se. Probably just from itching. 
puritis itself has been described as being seen as the only symptom of hepatitis C. And as you know, in people with an atopic diathesis who scratch, some of them develop nodular lesions, which we know as purigo nodularis. A close-up of that. And porokeratosis. Again, perhaps from rubbing, this is a patient with an actinic porokeratosis, but has also been associated with hepatitis C. And so I'll leave you with this whole list of disease uh, to think of. But the ones that are the most important or the ones that I would put highest on my list are the patients with lichen planus, porphyria cutanea tarda, and unexplained urticaria and unexplained apathy. And with that, I'll cease and entertain some questions if you like. And it's 5 o'clock, and you're probably all ready for a drink. But thank you very much. Questions? Yes, ma'am. What is your dosing for acyclovir or Valtrex for an HIV-positive with shingles? Wait, say that again. What's your, your dosing? Your dosing of yeah. It's exactly the same as the dose that you would use in an HIV-negative patient. And, and you can use either acyclovir, 800 milligrams, five times a day. You can use Valtrex three times a day, whichever you prefer. They, they work equally as well. The, the thing that to be aware of is that sometimes you'll treat your HIV patient and the shingles will come right back, and that's a problem. You will, I've also seen patients who become resistant to acyclovir. They have acyclovir-resistant zoster. And those patients you have to hospitalize and treat with Foscarna. So it, it's, it's a real, it can be a real problem. But the dose is essentially the same. So. Oh, because so many, yeah. The question the lady's asking is, I said the doctor diagnosed zoster, treated it wrong. Often the doctor will, many physicians will tell the patient to take acyclovir 200 milligrams five times a day, not 800 milligrams five times a day. So that, that was the error. Yes, ma'am. When do you decide to just check a hepatitis C versus a hepatitis panel? Oh, you, if you're used to doing panels, I, I do panels. Okay. And, uh, but all, all I'm trying to do in this talk is just make you be sure you're adding hep C to your, to your panel. But no, I, when I'm uh, trying to evaluate, I evaluate for hep A, B, and C. Yes. I have a 75-year-old female who's had recurrent molluscum on the scalp, and uh, I haven't asked her about immunodeficiency. I asked her to go to an internist and have her immune system exam. I mean, and the internist totally blew it off. Yeah, um, exactly. Don't you worry your pretty little head. You're absolutely yeah. right. Well, you, you can make the diagnosis and blow him out of the ground. Uh, do a CD4 test. Just order a CD4 kit. And if it's abnormally low, then send her back and say, you know, this lady ought to have at least 400 CD4 cells, and she's got 300. Would you explain to me why? You know? Because ch chances are with that lady, it's not AIDS. Chances are it's a malignancy, and it may be a, a liquid malignancy, um, a lymphoma or a leukemia. Any other questions? Well, thank you all very much. Enjoy San Francisco. Congratulations.